Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. So good to see you. Thanks so much to everyone who's tuned in online. However you're joining us, I'm just really glad that you're here. For those of you who are new right now as a church, we're studying through the gospel of Matthew. We've just been taking it one section at a time. And in our study, it's brought us to the passage we're covering today, which is Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. And in this particular passage, Jesus is going to teach us a really important lesson uh, related to the reality that as followers of Jesus, we hold what we could call dual citizenship. To help you understand this concept of dual citizenship, let me begin with a story. Maybe a month or two ago, I was at my son Lincoln's softball game. Our church has two different softball teams, and my son Lincoln plays for one of those two teams. And I was sitting there chatting with one of the other parents, uh, Fernanda Murray, and uh, we got talking about her life and where she came from, how she got to the United States, because you see, she's originally from Brazil. Well, she met uh, a childhood friend that I grew up going to church with. Uh, she met him. They fell in love. They got married. And she ended up moving here to the States. And in time, she got her U.S. citizenship, which means she now has responsibilities, uh, not just to one country, but to two. Now, concerning her Brazilian uh, responsibilities, uh, one of them is to vote. Brazilian citizens are required to vote starting at the age of 16, and they take it very seriously. The only reason you could be excused uh, would be because maybe you're in the hospital or, you know, you're out of your district for some serious, serious health reason uh, when the time to vote came. Well, when Fernanda moved here to the United States, uh, she kind of mistakenly thought that, well, hey, now that I am a citizen of the United States, my responsibilities fall here to my citizenship uh, to the United States. And she uh, didn't realize that, no, some of the responsibilities related to her Brazilian citizenship were still in play. So when she moved here, she said, you know, what? I don't have to vote anymore. I'm a citizen now of a new country. But as it turned out, that wasn't the case. And she found that out only recently when she attempted to return to Brazil. And they informed her that she was wanted by the federal authorities for not voting in the last two elections. Now, here's the deal. This was a total mix-up. This wasn't done maliciously. She's in the process of sorting it uh, all out, uh, being a faithful citizen uh, that she is. But I share this story because it highlights the following reality. Citizenship comes with responsibilities, and those responsibilities must be fulfilled. Now, I was so thankful to Fernanda who uh, gave me permission to share that story. So I don't want you thinking if you're sitting next to me at our next church softball game, anything you say is fair game for my next uh, sermon. Okay, I promise you it's sacrosanct and uh, I'll only share if I receive permission. But I'm so thankful to her for giving me permission to share uh, because it's such a great segue uh, into our text. Our text today, Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27, uh, shows us that as disciples of Jesus, just like Fernanda, we have dual citizenship. 
We are citizens of heaven, but simultaneously, we're citizens of earth. And we have responsibilities to fulfill with each citizenship. Responsibilities that are going to be highlighted as we work our way through our text. So let's get into it. We see three simple things in our text today. The payment, the principle, and the practice. And we're going to go through these one at a time, beginning with the payment. The payment. Friends, the temple at Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish life. And it was a costly place to run. As renowned New Testament scholar William Barclay put it, there were the daily morning and evening sacrifices, each involving the offering of a year-old lamb. Along with the lamb were offered wine and flour and oil. The incense, which was burned every day, had to be bought and prepared. And the costly decorations of the temple and the robes of the priest constantly were wearing out. And the robe of the high priest was itself worth a king's ransom. So do you see, friends, the temple was an expensive thing to run. So on the basis of Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, it was laid down by God that every male Jew, uh, 20 years old or older, had to pay an annual temple tax of two drachmas, okay? Drachma in value was equal to one day's wage for a skilled laborer. So the temple tax, two drachmas, was worth two days' wages. Now, the method of collecting this tax was very well organized. Every March, an announcement was made in all the towns and villages throughout the land of Israel that it was now time to pay the temple tax. On the 15th of the month, booths were set up in each town and in each village, and you had between the 15th of the month and the 25th of the month to go ahead and pay your temple tax at the booth. And I mention this because it's the payment of this tax that is the subject uh, of the text that we're studying today. We read, picking up in verse 24, when they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, meaning the collectors of the temple tax, who went out each March, went up to the apostle Peter and they said to him, hey, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter said, yes, meaning, oh, absolutely he does. All right, friends, let's orient ourselves to our text real quick. Last week, Jesus was ministering at the base of Mount Moran, but now he and his disciples are traveling south, and they've arrived in the city of Capernaum, which was just north of the Sea of Galilee, and they are staying at the Apostle Peter's house because Peter was from Capernaum. Now, while in town... Peter passes one of the tax booths and the IRS agent working the booth asks him Jesus's position on paying the temple tax. And Peter didn't have to run and ask Jesus where he stood. By this point, Peter has been with Jesus for some two and a half years and he knew that Jesus always paid his taxes, whether they were the taxes levied by Rome or the taxes levied by the Jewish religious leaders such as the temple tax. 
But apparently, Peter had never given much thought as to why Jesus was willing to pay the temple tax. It's as if he gets to thinking, you know, Jesus is the one whom the temple was built to honor. And Jesus is the one to whom its sacrifices and offerings are made. So why does Jesus pay the temple tax? And so he decides to head back to where Jesus was uh, at his house and ask him, which leads us really nicely to the second thing that we see in our text, which we'll call the principle. So first the payment and now the principle. Picking up in verse 25, and when he, Peter, came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons, meaning from the members of their own family, or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And friends, that's the principle. The sons are free. Now, this is not the way it works in our 21st century American culture, but this is the way it worked back in Jesus's culture. Nowadays, we have a democracy, and in a democracy, everyone pays taxes, uh, even uh, government officials, even the president himself. But in the time of Christ, governments around the world, almost without exception, were autocratic, meaning they had a king, and the king ruled with absolute power, and the king would levy taxes uh, from his citizenry for two purposes. One, to provide for his own family, and two, to provide for the needs of that king's government. So obviously, it would make no sense for the king to charge the sons, the members of his own family, taxes. He collected taxes to provide for his family. So, of course, he's not going to go ahead and collect taxes from his own family. So when Jesus asks Peter, hey, from whom do the kings of the earth collect tax from his sons, from the members of his own family, or, or from those outside his family? Peter, of course, understanding the culture that he lived in, understanding the common custom of his day, was able to immediately respond. Oh, my goodness, it's from others, not the members of his own family. To which Jesus replies, you're correct. The sons are free. The sons don't pay taxes. Now, understand that Jesus is giving Peter an earthly example to help him to understand a spiritual reality. Jesus is saying that God, the king of the universe, is his father. He's saying, I am the king's son. And oh, this temple that we're talking about paying tax to? Yeah, that's my father's house. Do you remember what happened when Jesus, as a 12-year-old child, went to Jerusalem and then his parents left thinking that Jesus was with them, but then after a day's journey, they realized, no, he's not with us. And so they had to go back into Jerusalem and they searched everywhere for Jesus. And finally, they found him at the temple. And here's what he said to his parents. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Jesus is saying, God is king. And I am the king's son. And the temple, that's our home. 
So what Jesus is saying is, why in the world would I be obligated to pay the temple tax? My father is the king. And as everybody knows, kings collect taxes from those outside the family, not from within. The sons are free. And here's where our story, though, takes a very interesting turn. Here's where our story takes an unexpected turn. After making a powerful argument based on a well-established principle that everyone in Jesus' day was intimately familiar with, for why he is exempt from paying taxes, Jesus now gets into what he'll actually do in practice. And this is the third thing that we see in our text. First, the payment, second, the principle, and now thirdly, the practice. In principle, Jesus didn't have to pay, but in practice, he chose to do so anyway. And that's what we see here in verse 27. Jesus says, I'm under no obligation to pay. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that shekel and give it to the tax collectors for me and for yourself. Anybody ever read that and go, man, life is unfair. I'm going to pray next time tax season comes along, Lord, just provide a fish. And I want all my federal and state tax to be found in the mouth of the fish. Doesn't seem right, but that's what happened. But here's the deal. Though Jesus wasn't obligated to pay, you know, being the king's son and all, he chose to anyway, and the text says, as to not give offense. Now, here's the deal. All throughout the New Testament, uh, the, the phrase to give offense, it means something very specific in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when you see uh, that, that phrase, to give an offense, it always means to put a stumbling block in someone's path in a way that would cause them to trip over it and fall to the ground. That's what it means in the New Testament to give an offense. Put a stumbling block in someone's path that they would trip and fall over. Now that we know that, we can understand its meaning here. Jesus paid the temple tax because he knew that if he didn't, it would only serve as a stumbling block for people to accept his message of salvation. Friends, we have to remember that the temple tax was required by Jewish law. It was required by the law of Moses. And if Jesus didn't pay it, he would have been seen as a lawbreaker even more than he already was seen as a lawbreaker because of all the healings that he performed on the Sabbath. So had he not paid the temple tax, he would have put a stumbling block in front of people, making it even harder for them than it already was to accept his message of salvation. And Jesus just wasn't willing to do that. And this is really interesting here because what we see is that Jesus didn't operate by the standard that you and I might find ourselves operating by. Jesus did not ask in this situation, what is technically required by the law? What are my rights? No, he said, what's best in terms of other people coming to believe my message of salvation? Because that is what I want to do, regardless of what is or is not required under the law. He was just operating at a higher standard. So he decided to go ahead and pay the tax because that 
is what was in the best spiritual interest of the people he was trying to reach. And he paid that tax in the most interesting way, didn't he? As Jack, our Connect pastor, taught us last week, fish like shiny silver objects. In case you weren't here last week, Jack, our Connect pastor, preached, and he shared the story of fishing with his dad in the Connecticut River, and the waters were really murky, and he had this like you know dark green bait that blended in with the water, and none of the fish can see it, so Jack didn't catch any fish. His dad, on the other hand, used this shiny silver spinnerbait thing, and he was just pulling them in one after another. So fish like shiny silver objects. Well, here's the deal. The shekel that Jesus is talking about in our text was the equivalent to a shiny silver bait spinner. The shekel was a silver coin worth four drachmas. Again, each person 20 years old and older had to pay two drachmas for the temple tax. So one shekel would be enough to pay the temple tax for two people. And God's provision for Jesus and Peter, who apparently had no other money to use to pay the tax at this time, was to provide through a fish that had seen and swallowed a shiny silver shekel. And Jesus used that shekel to pay the temple tax for him and for Peter, even though he wasn't uh, duty-bound to do so, because not doing so would have created an impediment for others in believing his gospel message. Now, friends, what this text highlights for us is Jesus's dual citizenship. We see in our text that Jesus was a citizen of heaven and simultaneously a citizen of earth. As a citizen of heaven, Jesus fulfilled all that God the Father required of him to do. Jesus lived to do the will of his Father. And as a citizen of earth, he fulfilled not all that God required of him. As a citizen of earth, he fulfilled all the government required of him. So long as they weren't asking Jesus to directly disobey a command of God, Jesus submitted to the governing authorities and he did so as to not put any stumbling block in front of people who were far from God. And in doing this, understand, Jesus was setting an example for you and I to follow. As I mentioned earlier, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, just like Fernanda, we hold dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. And we have responsibilities related to each of our citizenship. And take a look. Just like Jesus, it is good and fitting and proper for us to fulfill the obligations of both our citizenships. Concerning our citizenship in heaven, Paul stated it clearly. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, we are citizens of heaven. And that being the case, we need to fulfill the responsibilities that we have to our heavenly citizenship. And Jesus has covered what those responsibilities are back in chapter 16. He says, here's what I require of the true citizens of heaven. You must deny yourself. You must die on a daily basis to yourself. And instead, you need to choose to go ahead and follow Jesus closely in discipleship. And when we do this, we fulfill the obligations of our citizenship to heaven. 
But make no mistake about it. We are simultaneously citizens of earth. And just like Jesus, we must fulfill the requirements of this citizenship as well. Which includes submission to the governing authorities, even right on down to paying our taxes. Now, friends, I think it's such an important text for us to study today because so many people think, you know, I just need to set my sights on being a good citizen of heaven. And so long as I'm a good citizen of heaven, it really doesn't matter what kind of citizen I am here on earth. Wrong. Friends, the text teaches us today that you cannot be a good citizen of heaven without first being a good citizen of earth. And so again, in our text today, we learn how to be both a good citizen of heaven as well as a good citizen of earth. But let's get into it a little deeper. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, where the apostle uh, Paul highlights uh, one of the primary ways in which you and I can be good citizens of earth. He says this, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. <coughs> Excuse me. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment <clears throat> on themselves. I'm getting over a cold, if you can't tell. <clears throat> now, here's the deal. When we submit to the governing authorities, so long as they're not asking us to do something that would directly violate a commandment of God, we are to submit. And when we do, we make our faith attractive to people who are far from God. But the opposite is also true. When we are rebels in society, insurrectionists who go our own way and act like the people who live during the time of the judges, where everyone just does what they think is right in their own eyes, which resulted in such chaos. When we act that way, we make our Christian faith repulsive. Now, I could give you so many different examples, but since we just went through a global pandemic, let me grab an illustration from recent history. During the pandemic, the governing authorities told us temporarily don't meet in person. Just to be clear, they weren't asking us to disown Jesus, deny our faith. They weren't saying don't meet together, period. They were saying just don't meet together in person. Nowadays, we can meet together online and all these kinds of things. So friends, this wasn't an issue of religious liberty. This was an issue of public safety. So we were, as Christians, supposed to take our cues from Romans 13 and submit to the governing authorities, which is exactly what we did here at New Day Church. There's a large and prominent church, though, in the area that decided, you know, to heck with the government, you know, if they ask us to do something that we don't like, well, you know, we're just not going to do it. And then they used all kinds of, you know, uh, scriptural manipulation to justify, uh, you know, what they were doing. Now, a bunch of people in that church got sick, and then they went out into the community, and they got everyone in the community sick. Then all those sick people showed up to the same hospital that was in that town. Well, we have nurses at our church who work at that hospital. And guess what they let us, the pastoral staff, know about the effect of those Christians 
and what kind of effect they had on the workers at the hospital as well as the unbelieving community in which they lived. And they just let us know that people are cursing the followers of Jesus. Oh my goodness, these stupid Christians. How could they do this? This is so reckless. This is so, oh my, and they were just so mad and so upset. Now, how do you think they felt about the God that we serve when they were cursing us? So, so do you see, when we submit to the governing authorities, so long as they're not asking us to directly disobey God, we make our faith attractive, but the opposite is equally true. We make our faith repulsive when we don't live as law-abiding citizens. Now, many people, no doubt, are objecting right now, as they did in first service and as they did in second service, some very vocally, some might object, I had the right to do what I wanted. I had the right, as a United States citizen, I had the right to do what I felt was. Well, let's go back to the example of Jesus. Did he ask the question, what is technically required by law in this situation? Or did he ask this question, what is best for the spiritual benefit of other people who are far from God? What action could I take right now that would repulse people from the gospel? And what action can I take right now that would draw people irresistibly to the gospel? And Jesus didn't cling to his rights. Jesus went ahead as the servant that he was and is, and he did what was in the best interest of the people he was trying to reach with the glorious gospel of heaven. And friends, that's what we're called to do too. You say, but I don't like the governing authorities. I don't want to submit to them because I don't agree with them. Hey, look, can I just tell you too? I don't agree with them either. Good grief. They don't even know how to balance a budget. You think I trust them in every other area of life? I don't. I understand that a message like this, it brings up all these visceral reactions. And believe me, I had to go through all that leading up to today. And now it's your turn. But here's the deal. We don't do it for the government's sake. What does the apostle Peter teach in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14? Take a look. He says, submit yourselves, not for the government's sake. He says, submit for the Lord's sake. Do it for the Lord. Do it because you're trying to reach people who are far from him. And if you're a rabble rousing insurrectionist, you're not going to win anyone to our cause. So he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors. So many people now say, oh, if we just, I mean, we're following the government now and look at all the, the negatives it's creating. And so, you know, we should just completely ignore all they say. Yeah. And if everyone in society did as you're doing, the negative effects would be 10,000 times worse than whatever negative effects are happening now. It really comes down to this. Who's smarter, you or God? Who knows best? Me personally, I'm in the camp. God knows best. So even when I'm upset about something, even if I don't like something, even if something sometimes doesn't make sense to me in my mind that I might want to go this way. No, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we look at his words, we look at his ways, and we follow his example. As difficult at times as that might be. Now, here's the deal. This same concept that, that not submitting to the governing authorities hurts our witness, this same concept, it applies to paying taxes. They say, and they are right, that we can count on two things in life, death and 
Taxes, that's right. And if you, like me, got an unexpected $5,000 tax bill this past season, you might say, I prefer death. As a side note, I am no longer using my former tax preparer, you know? <laughs> Things went horribly wrong. I say, I got one rule for you. I don't want to owe at the end of the year. Yeah, he, he missed that. So anyway, anyway. Death and taxes, we can count on them both. Well, here's the deal concerning taxes. Some Christians make an objection to paying taxes. Some refuse to pay. Some are dishonest about how much they actually earn so that they're not paying as much as they should. And a lot of professing followers of Jesus justify their immoral behavior with this line of reasoning. They say, some of the money that's collected is used for ungodly purposes. They say, why pay taxes or report what you truly owe when some of it is used to support abortion? or the LGBTQ plus community, or any other ungodly uh, initiative that scripture presents clearly as sinful. I won't do it. And they think they're justified in not paying their taxes based on that line of reasoning. Well, let me go ahead and address that line of reasoning from a scriptural standpoint. Friends, just as God instituted the church and expects his followers to financially support the ministry of the church through their tithes and offerings, so God instituted government and likewise expects his followers to financially support the work of the government with their taxes. So we support the church, something God instituted with our tithes, and we support the government, something else that God instituted with our taxes. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. There is no authority except that which, has, uh, that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And it's because the institution of government was established by God that Paul continues like this in verse 6. He says, this is why you pay your taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So again, we'll use the church as the parallel to help us understand what's being said here. God established the church and wants pastors to give their full-time attention to governing the church. So he commands that the pastors be financially supported in doing their work through the tithes and offerings of its congregants. Likewise, God established the government and wants government officials to give their full-time attention to governing their town or state or, or country. So he commands that government officials be financially supported in doing their work through the taxes of its citizenry. Now, God put government in place to punish those who do evil and to encourage good in society. Are there corruptions of this? Yes, absolutely. But we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater. Because just as pastors are God's servants, so are police officers and judges and other government officials. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, he, referring to the one in authority, is God's servant who exists to do you good. Now, since in context, God's servant here refers to what we today would call the police, let's use the police as an example. 
In preventing evil, police do God's work on the earth. And in punishing evil, police also do God's work on the earth. Are they perfect? No. Just like pastors aren't perfect, police aren't perfect. Are some police corrupt? It's safe to answer the question. Are some police corrupt? Okay. Are some pastors corrupt? Yes. Yes. Just because some pastors are corrupt, do we do away with the institution of church? No. Well, likewise, just because some police officers are corrupt, do we do away with the institution called law enforcement? Friends, absolutely not. The corruption in the church or in the police force, friends, it's the exception to the rule. It's not the norm. So both institutions are to be supported financially because both are doing God's work on the earth. Now, if I could have a little parenthetical heart to heart with you in both first service and second, oh, the ire that this produced in some people. And I understand, but here's my question to you. Have I said anything to you today that I have not backed up with chapter and verse from the Bible? Okay, if what I'm saying is Mike's opinion, as if I'm a political commentator, then you could be all upset at me. Oh, this is Mike's opinion. This is. If you're upset today, you can send the email to Andrew at NewDayChurch.cc. <laughs> If what I am saying today is from God's word, then here's the deal. He is the chef. He has prepared the meal. I am the waiter delivering the meal to you. You don't have an issue with me. You have an issue with God. If what I'm saying today is from God's word. So I'm gonna let you wrestle with that as we keep going in the sermon. Are we justified in not paying our taxes or lying about the correct amount that we owe? On the authority of God's word, I would say never. Here's what the Bible teaches. We are responsible before God to pay our taxes because that's what he commands us to do. Once we have paid our taxes, we have fulfilled our Christian responsibility to God by fulfilling our Christian responsibility to government. And guess who is responsible from that point forward to God for how the money is spent? It's the government officials. So I know it's upsetting to me too that some of my tax money might be used to support something that the Bible explicitly states as sinful. I hate that, but guess what? That's not on me. My job's to pay my taxes. And then from there, it's the government's job to spend that wisely in accordance with God's purposes on the earth. And they will be held accountable if they don't. But we are never justified in not doing our responsibility just because someone might take what we give and use it for nefarious purposes. I know that some of the tax money is used for bad, but let's not forget that a lot of it is used for good. Tax money is used for school, for children, it's used for healthcare programs, it's used to help fund social programs, it's, helped to, it's used to help build and maintain the roads and the bridges and other infrastructure. By a show of hands, who else needed a road to get to church today? For those of you who came out on purpose, yes, yeah, me too, me too, I used a bridge as well. It's all paid for by tax money. And tax money is used to fund the military, which protects the country from foreign threats and ensures the safety of all us citizens. 
So remember, when you cheat the government of taxes, you're really cheating God out of the money that he wants to use to fund the work of the people who provide all these good things. So again, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because some of the money is used for immoral things doesn't negate our responsibility to pay taxes. And I will give you this exclamation mark on this point by reminding you that when Jesus paid the temple tax, as he did in our passage, it was less than six months from the time when the leaders of the temple would band together, working with the Romans to put Jesus to death. And Jesus knew that was going to happen, yet he paid the tax. We're going to get to this later in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is so upset at the corruption in the religious leaders that he shows up to one of the annual festivals, the pastor, and he's flipping tables over and he's saying, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Yet Jesus paid the tax to support the very workers who had become corrupt. Why? Because he was a citizen of heaven, but also a citizen of earth. And as citizens of earth, we are responsible to pay our taxes. What's done with them from that point forward, that's between those people and God, not us. We have to fulfill the obligations of our citizenry. Submit to the government so long as they're not asking us to directly disobey a command of God. And we submit right on down to the unpleasant duty of paying our taxes. If Jesus wasn't justified in not paying taxes due to the fact that some of the money was used for immoral purposes, if he wasn't justified, how, how much less so are we? Yeah, I didn't expect too many amens. <laughs> Friends, let's not forget that when we don't pay our taxes, it's not just disobedience to God, it also negatively affects our witness in the world. Well, we have to remember that. It negatively affects our witness in the world. Imagine all Christians were like, ah, some of the money's used for immoral purposes. So, you know, we as a, as a you know, faith, community of faith, we're, we're just, you know, we're against it. We're not doing it. All the people in the world would be, you know, do Christians not drive on the roads? Do Christians not send their kids to school? Do Christians not enjoy the security and protection that comes from our military, yet they don't contribute towards all these benefits that they take advantage of? What hypocrites. And that's what Jesus is getting at today. It's not just about obeying God. It's about our witness in this world. So friends, I get it. It's a messed up world. We can't wait for the kingdom of Jesus to come and take over this kingdom of Satan. It's all messed up. But Jesus has shown us how to live in a way that attracts people to the faith as we live in this messed up world. And he's shown us that today. So we ought always to strive to never put a stumbling block to faith in front of anyone far from God. All right, let me kind of bring this all together for you because we've uh, certainly covered a lot today, have we not? All right, here we go. In summary, as disciples of Jesus, we hold dual citizenship. We have responsibilities related to our citizenship in heaven, and we have responsibilities related to our citizenship on earth. And we cannot be a good disciple of Jesus. We cannot be a good citizen of heaven without first being a good citizen of earth. As much as we at times watching the idiocy of the government and how they do certain things want to just divorce citizenship from heaven 
from citizenship on earth, but we are not allowed to do that. As Jesus himself put it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Friends, there is our dual citizenship right there. Caesar represents government and then there is God. And we as Christians having dual citizenship have responsibilities to both God and to government. It's not either or, it's both and. Obeying our governing authorities and paying our taxes, it's not only a matter of obedience to God, it's also significantly affecting our witness to an unbelieving world. So the prayer today is quite simple. God, help us to be both good citizens of heaven and good citizens of earth that we might win this lost world to Jesus. Can we pray? Those of you online, everyone here in person, out in the foyer, maybe you would bow your head and close your eyes. And if you'd like to, I invite you to pray along with me. Say in your heart, Heavenly Father, thank you for highlighting uh, my dual citizenship. As well as highlighting the responsibilities that I have in relation to each. God, I want to be a good citizen of heaven and earth. Find it easier sometimes to be a good citizen of heaven. Earth's such a messed up place. I just want to rebel and do my own thing. And... But God, I see today that I have responsibilities to both citizenships. So please forgive me for any shortcomings I have in that area and help me moving forward to better fulfill the responsibilities of each citizenship. I so look forward to the time when the only citizenship that I'll have will be in heaven. But until that time, God, help me to be an excellent citizen of earth. I know that the lost world is watching, looking for any excuse they can find to reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. And God, my prayer is may they never find any such excuse from my life. I will pray for my governing authorities. I will submit to my governing authorities. I will participate in society, being a servant, just as you were, that they might be attracted to my faith and find themselves the salvation that can only come through faith in Jesus. God, I pray for your help. And I ask in his name, amen. Amen. Can I just say thank God we have a pastor who cares so much about the witness that we all give in this world. I'm just thankful for Mike this morning. Uh, but we did just learn about dual citizenship. That was the, the whole gist of the message, being a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. But some here today haven't yet become a citizen of heaven. And if that's you, I'd like to help you become one before you walk out those doors today. The way to become a citizen of heaven is to put your faith in Jesus. And we put our faith in Jesus because we're all guilty of sin, meaning we all go against God's commandments. You see, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day they eat it, that is the day that they sinned, they would surely die. Unfortunately, we know the story. We know they ate from the tree. And if you fast forward to today, 
all have sinned too today. But the good news is that God doesn't want us to suffer the penalty for that sin. He wants us to be saved from that penalty. When we put our faith in Jesus and count his death on the cross as a payment for our sin, he forgives us so that we will not surely die, but rather so that we can be saved from that penalty and experience eternal life with God so that we can be a citizen of heaven. If you want to put your faith in Jesus today, the way that we do that here at New Day is to invite him into your heart and let us know. So at the beginning of service, Jack mentioned that connect card, the welcome card that's right in front of you. If you made that decision today, go ahead and mark that box that says, I've decided to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. You can take that to guest services. They're going to hand you a Bible so that you can get reading into God's word. They're going to congratulate you. If you're online, we have a QR code or a link in the chat to do the same and we'll mail you that Bible and I just want to say congratulations on becoming a citizen of heaven today. That's all that we have for you. God bless your Sunday and have a great rest of the day. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.